Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to Who's Talking. Like his heroes, our guest has been pushing the boundaries of comedy as the writer, director, and producer of some of the funniest movies and television shows of the past quarter century. And in the process, he's paid tribute to comedy's trailblazers while bringing along the talent of the next generation. I worked a lot on this question, Alex. Hey, so, Janaya, don't do that. <laughs> Are you always like this? Are you saying parents are wrong? Yes. Will you come back? Yes, of course I will. Judd Apatow, I am excited to talk to you. I should say, I have spent more time practicing your name, Tao, not (laughs) Toe. I mean, you can't know how much stress came into that. You know, Toe sounds fancy. So if you slip up, uh, it's better. Okay. (laughs) That should be my whole thought. If I slip up, it's better. All right. You've got an interesting new movie that you produced Mm -hmm. called Bros. It is the first gay romantic comedy from a major studio featuring a cast that's almost entirely people who are LGBTQ. Let's look at some clips from it. Okay. I need you to be honest with me. You like these rowy meathead idiots. Oh, look, they're fighting. You like that? Hey. I can be tough oh, like your you boys. Like oh, that's what you like, huh? Oh, oh, hey, what's going on? Oh, that's cool. Bye bye. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Now I have to go to a Pride party, and you're both too old to be in the pool. Please leave. <laughs> So what is the headline here, that you got funding to make a gay rom-com or that it took so long to get funding to make a gay rom-com? Well, it's certainly terrible that there aren't a ton of these and haven't been movies like this over the years. I mean, that is, uh, I mean, a sad part of the of the history of film. There are a lot of underserved communities. Uh, Universal Studios, they, they were game to make it as soon as we pitched it. There was never any resistance to making it, but definitely uh, there should be one of these from the entire history of filmmaking. So we're both happy, but it, it feels a little weird that it took this long. And, and let me ask you why it, it took that this long. It, was there concern? Is there a concern? This movie's going to play great with a certain demographic, but maybe a general audience will, won't buy into it? I think that uh, the industry in general probably uh, looks for the path of least resistance or they look to do uh, the repeat of things that have succeeded. And so there's not, you know, a a tremendous amount of courage to break new ground in in the industry. Not courage in Hollywood to break new ground? It's shocking, right? Uh, So just the fact that something didn't get made is the reason why it continues to not get made. And... You know, hopefully the movie will do well and it'll show people that it was always ridiculous that uh, 
they didn't make more movies like this. And yeah, I'm sure on some level, there are studios that thought, will people go? Is there money in this? Because ultimately, they're, they're chasing money. But the result of that is that there's large groups of people in all sorts of communities that don't see themselves represented in film. And I think that's a very destructive thing. The famous movie mogul, Sam Goldwyn, supposedly said, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. Yeah. Does this movie send a message? Well, within it, I think there's uh, aspects to the story that, I don't know if I would call them messages, but maybe things that people should know about, know about the humanity of people that are ignored in, in culture way too much. But I think the audience does like messages uh, in movies. I think we like movies that are about something. This is a romantic comedy. It, you know, it's, it's not built to be some serious situation. It's really funny and romantic, but there's definitely moments in it that were very important to Billy Eichner uh, that make clear what it's like to be a gay man in America and the ways that you're excluded and what that does to you. There are obvious sensitivities about, about this subject, this kind of a project. Dave Chappelle's couple of specials that he did on Netflix created a kind of semi-revolt at Netflix. Uh, were there concerns, were there sensitivities in making this movie about how far you should go and things you can say and can't say? Uh, not really. I think that we made the movie uh, that uh, Billy and the director Nick Stoller wanted to make. And then what you do is you test it. You, you take it to uh, you know, a city and you show a crowd. And it was a crowd where half the people were straight and half were uh, LGBTQ. And we're waiting to see you know, how do people respond to it. And people just loved it. And you really felt- You didn't get any pushback? I mean, they just loved the movie. There wasn't even like a scene where you went, oh, that went too far. It, it just played really, really well. And that also made you think, well, we're just, it's so late to make a movie like this. The crowd basically was saying, we've been ready for this for a really long time. Let, let's talk about, you say about going too far. Um, you have been criticized mm -hmm. over the years for making jokes using gay slurs or trans slurs which, you know, honestly seemed kind of funny at the time, but in today's world, and maybe even then, to some people, weren't so funny. Uh, and then there's this scene I want to show from the 40-year-old virgin. Take a look. All right. You know how I know that you're gay? How? Oh. You like the movie Made in Manhattan? You know I know you're gay? How? I saw you make a spinach dip in a loaf of sourdough bread once. You know how I know that you're gay? How? You have a rainbow bumper sticker on your card that says, I love it when balls are in my face. That's gay? God damn it. I'm ripping your head off right now. It's off, and now I'm throwing it at your body. So I remember watching that in the movie yeah. theater and thinking that was a hilarious scene. Maybe my one of my favorite scenes for that movie. Mm -hmm. Would you make that same scene today? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good question. I probably would think about it. Uh, and, and try to get a sense from people around me how, you know, how they felt. Certainly at the time, the intention was to show really immature men right. that, that should know better, and it's really more about them than what they're saying. And uh, you know, the culture has changed where I think part of the audience is, is saying, you know, we don't want to be goofed on in any way. And there's another part of the audience that thinks everyone should get goofed on that that's part of uh, you know, what our lives are about. And I, I try to just lead with my heart. I, I really feel like you could do anything, you could say anything if your heart's 
in the right place. You just need to take a little time now to really think through uh, your jokes and how they affect people. So, so is there a line? Has the line changed over the years? And should comedians even worry, be thinking about a line? I, I think it's really a, a very personal, creative decision. You know, there are people who love very rough comedy. They, they want it to go hard, they want to be shocked, they want it to be dark. There are other people who want very gentle comedy. It's kind of like music. You might like Metallica, you might like Garth Brooks. Everyone has different taste. And sometimes in the culture, you know, we're forced to watch the taste of the thing that we don't want to hear or see. And so each artist has to decide what they're comfortable with and what they feel is ethical and what, what serves their but, creative But I mean, the, to me, the, the difference is, I mean, you're sort of saying, well, somebody could do rock and somebody could do classical, but now if you're doing rough comedy yeah. and pushing too far, that alleged transgression plays out throughout the entire community. It's not like, well, okay, but this niche can watch it and everybody else can ignore it. No, everybody else becomes aware of it. Uh, yeah, I think that's what's made it more complicated. In the old days, it might just be in the comedy club, or maybe right. it's a special that you made a point of seeing, and now everyone chops everything up, and they put it on Instagram, and they put it on TikTok, and it's just everywhere. And I think it, it's led to these uh, debates. And you know, for me personally, I only can think, you know, am I proud? Am I comfortable with what I'm doing? And my friend Colin Quinn always says, you know, you can say whatever you want as long as you're willing to stand behind it. You have to be thoughtful and you have to be comfortable with what you're putting into the world. So you also, this year, you're a busy guy, co-directed a documentary about one of the original comedians to cross the line, George Carlin. And I want to play his, one of his most famous routines about the seven dirty words Yes. You can't say on television. Wait, we're on television. Oh, I understand, and we're, they're going to say them now on television. <laughs> Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. That was my original list. I knew it wasn't complete. Then he goes... But it was a starter set. And breaks apart. Why are these dirty words? And usually on television, some of the words aren't always dirty, like ass. The word ass is okay. Part of the time, you can say ass on TV. You can say, well, you've made a perfect ass of yourself tonight. But you can't say, hey, let's go get some ass. George Carlin was arrested several yes. times for yep. that routine. And mm -hmm. in fact, when he did it on, on radio, it ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court, which said, in fact, that the FCC could regulate when the seven dirty words. Yes. I mean, it was a big deal. Uh, it, it was a big deal. I mean, there are definitely people who, who think, oh, oh, words can hurt you. And I think he really believed that words just have uh, the power uh, that you give them with your intent. And, you know, as a parent uh, 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 of two daughters, you know, that's what you think. Do we curse in the house? Do I care if they curse in the house? What, what should they see? What should I make sure they don't see? And, you know, I, I really feel like language wasn't something that affected them uh, positive, positively or negatively in terms of their ethics and their ability to grow up and, and be healthy. And I think that's what uh, George Carlin thought, that it was... Uh, you know, talking down to people to think that they couldn't handle certain dirty words. So, so where are we today in cancel culture? And, mm -hmm. and what do you say to those comedians who say, hey, in this environment, I really can't be creative? Well, I think that the comedians are being pr pretty creative. Most of the comedians, 
even the ones who are complaining are playing, uh, you know, they're playing sports arenas. And, you know, there are very few people that I see whose careers are suffering as a result of their So content. when they talk about, well, I'm being shut down, I'm being... I mean, I'm sure there are certain situations where people don't have access to this space or, or that space, but for the most part, their careers are still pretty much booming. It's a very different environment now because you don't need to have your own network television show. You could just have a podcast and you could just have your fans come see you and you sell your own advertising and there's a way to succeed uh, without having to please corporate America, which is where you get censored uh, you know, by corporations who don't want to support you or a network that might not want you on. But a lot of these people, they're going direct to consumer. So let's go back to Judd Apatow. Yes, I said it right, Apatow. Toe, Judd Apatow. Yes, I did. Okay. I did not, maybe by the end I'll say Toe. <laughs> who grew up in Long Island. And as I have this right, basically following comedy and comedians the way most kids followed baseball back yes. in the day. Mm -hmm. And at, at a certain point, I think as a teenager, you get a job washing dishes mm -hmm. because you can do it in a comedy club. Yes. And my question is, why? What, why yes. the fascination so early with comedy? Well, my grandmother was friends with this comedian named Toadie Fields. Oh, really? Who was See, a, I'm old enough to know <laughs> Toadie Fields. You get it. Everyone hey. else is Googling it. And uh, she was hilarious. <laughs> and you know, I guess in the tradition of somebody like Joan Rivers... And I think there was all this talk about how she was the coolest person in the world. And, you know, she was uh, a very unique comedian and made fun of herself a lot. And I think just as a weird little kid, I just thought, wow, everyone thinks she's awesome. And I feel kind of weird. And maybe that's a space that I could feel comfortable in. And I also probably was just an angry little kid who liked that comedians looked at the world and called out what they thought was BS about it. So I love the Marx Brothers. I love George, George Carlin. And uh, I like that George Carlin took apart uh, language and also looked at the way society worked and called out all the hypocrisies of it. And as a kid, that was very appealing. You, you said you were a weird little kid. Were you a weird little kid? I mean, to, to me, I was. <laughs> I also think I was little. You know, I, I, my, my parents, you know, they have that moment where when you're a December child, you could be the oldest kid right, in the right. grade or the youngest, right. and I was the youngest. And I was small and probably just thought, like, why am I, like, tiny and why is everybody uh, kicking my butt in, in every sport? I, I, like, I think those things affect you in terms of feeling other. Did, did you, I mean, were you popular in school? Did, you, did the girls pay attention to you? Were you kind of the kid in the corner? I think that... Uh, I was like, you know, I was probably right in the in the middle. There. That's a good place. I had a couple of friends, uh, you know. I had Ron Garner and Kevin Wellman. We were like best friends. I had a, People are a very, Googling them now. A very, a very nice <laughs> girlfriend in, in high school. So I certainly had a, a reasonable career. I wasn't like getting beat up on or, or anything during high school. But I was interested in comedy and no one else was interested in comedy. And I like that. I like that I didn't feel competitive with anyone, that I had this little special thing and if I was into Monty Python, no one in school wanted to talk about so, it. So in 10th grade, you get a, 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 your own program on the high school radio station, and you decide you are going to cold call yes. some of, of the big names in mm -hmm. comedy, and you're going to get them to sit down and talk to you. Who, who'd you talk to? I talked to, uh, this is like a 1984, Harry Anderson from Night Court and Steve okay. Allen. Yeah. Howard Stern, Sandra Bernhard, 
I talked to most of the original writers from Saturday Night Live. But wait a minute, because as I understand it, I mean, they're not coming to Syos at high school to talk to you. You're coming into the city with a big clunky tape recorder and you're walking into their office. And when they see it's not, you know, uh, you. It, it, well, <laughs> when they see it's Judd Apatow from Syosset High School, yeah. you're a kid. Yeah. Why don't they throw you out? I, I think back then, you know, pre-internet, pre-podcast, uh, I don't think many people wanted to talk to most of the comedians. I don't think they were doing a lot of interviews. Right now, if you're a comedian, everyone wants you to be on this show and that show and that podcast. I think that a lot of those publicists were happy to get them someone to talk to, and then I would show up, and Jerry Seinfeld would look at me and be like, oh, all right, let's do it. <laughs> really? <laughs> and then they would I got be, nothing better to do. They would be very nice. I remember interviewing Jay Leno at Rascal's Comedy Club in the little office of the manager of the club, and he talked to me for like an hour and a half. I mean, people were very, very nice. And hopefully I knew what I was talking about enough that it wasn't a painful experience. You say an up-and-coming Jerry Seinfeld was mm-hmm. the most helpful of all yes, of these yes. to you. What, what did he tell you? What did he teach you? Well, I went and interviewed him at his uh, apartment in Hollywood in 1984. There's nothing in the apartment. Like, now, wait a minute. You're in Syosset. How do you get to Hollywood? I visit my grandma, Molly. Okay. And I, uh, and I go to his apartment. And, you know, he really just explained how to write a joke. You know, because I just said, like, how do you how do you write a joke? And he gave me an example, uh, which was he was said he was writing a bit about a guy who was on this TV show, That's Incredible, who caught a bullet between his teeth. And then he started telling me what he was trying to do with it. Like he said, I try to come at it from every angle. Like this guy catches a bullet between his teeth, but I don't remember his name. And I'm sure the guy's thinking, what do I have to do to get you to remember my name? <laughs> That's a good Does he joke. start with a grape? How do you learn how to do this? And I think just talking to him and people like him, where they would walk me through that, you know, programmed my brain a little bit about how comedy is, is made. You did stand up. You did Gary Shandling, who you call a mentor. But I want to move on to the first movie that you directed, which was one of my favorites, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Uh, I, I have to say, if I'm flipping channels and mm-hmm. it just it comes up, yes. I'm in for at least 10 minutes. <laughs> okay. You know, there are certain movies <laughs> like that. Uh, cousin, My cousin Vinny, I'm in for yes. 10 minutes, particularly if it's a courtroom scene. Here is what I would call from my, the 40-year-old virgin, the scene. Okay. Ready? Yep. One, two. Oh, cock, cocksucker, motherfucker! You pulled on two! You pulled on two! Why did you pull on three? Sweetie, pie hole! Come on, see No, Kelly Clarkson! Three. But pause while the uh, host and the guest laugh for a minute, childishly. Uh, How did that scene come about? Uh, Well, we were sitting around. I wrote it. The movie with Steve Carell. It was his idea. And we thought, oh, there should be like a moment where they try to dress him better and get him ready to go dating. And we thought, oh, that's been done a zillion times. And what what would they do? And Steve was like, I'm hairy, maybe I could get... I was going to say, does the fact that he was freakishly hairy, did that, yes, that make as, it? as am I. And he said, I'm hairy, but maybe you could wax me. And he said, maybe it'd be funny if you really did it. Like, I think if you really did it, it would be funny. 
Now, the, in retrospect, what I realized is he didn't tell me that he was waxing. He acted like he had never waxed, but clearly he knew it would be funny and painful because he was already waxing. And so he I looked like that, and he was waxing. <laughs> like in his life, he had waxed before. <laughs> and so we hire uh, this Not young, for a while. this young woman, uh, and we said we need a professional waxer who could also act. But I think that that young woman did not know how to wax. I think she lied on her resume because you're not supposed to put the wax over the nipple because you could tear off the nipple, and she did. And and he what was. What do you mean she did? He didn't. I mean he didn't I, lose the nipple, but he was when this was over. No, there was he a was nipple stain. He was bleeding. <laughs> oh, like I know. like he had so much blood, we had to like use computer uh, uh, technology to remove how much blood was on him. And <laughs> you we were had, taking the blood away. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. It was not even funny blood, and uh, we had five cameras, and we just did it for real and improvised the whole thing. Other than we had this list of curses, you know, clean ones and dirty ones, and. And someone, probably Seth Rogen, thought that he should scream out Kelly Clarkson's name, <laughs> which made me think she's been famous for a long time. That's yes. like 18 years ago. This That's is right. a, a long career. So I was thinking about this today, and I was thinking about movies, and I want to I throw something at you. This movie, uh, The Wedding Crashes, which you mm. had nothing to do with. Mm. I have a theory that these movies are funnier in the first half Mm-hmm. When you're setting up the bit and you're setting yes. up the characters and you're doing all the stuff. The stripes theory. I don't I didn't know well, this. the movie stripes. A lot of people say yes. fell apart in the second half. When when, it, when they go to Germany <laughs> yes. with the with the war machine? The urban assault vehicle. It, it's terrible. Yes. <laughs> okay. And I would say that wedding crashers, when they leave the east the eastern shore estate, and mm-hmm. now he's got to find his way back to the girl, yes. it falls apart. And I think frankly, a little mm-hmm. bit in what in, in Virgin that when it becomes, is he going to find Catherine yes. Keener or not, it's less funny. Is, it, is this yes. just me or is this a thing? Well, I think a lot of movies, uh, you're ending on an emotional idea. Right. And so your hardest comedy is usually a little before the last 15 minutes. And I think when we make these movies, we're well aware that uh, you want some of your funniest stuff to be near the end. We certainly talk about that. But, you know, for instance, like in a movie like Trainwreck, it ends with a sweet moment with her dancing. And so you don't get the waxing in the last five minutes. But hopefully you're landing emotionally and people care about the characters and are happy, people connected in some way. I know you want hard comedy right to the end. I'm getting a sense of what kind of consumer of comedy you well, are. Well, listen, I can tell you all your movies yes. that, I, that I've seen. <laughs> so, well, I'll give you another one. Super bad. Yes. I think super bad, the first mm-hmm. half is better than the second half. I'm learning so much about you and your comedy taste. You you don't want the emotional stuff. You don't no. want the boop, like uh, the love stuff. No, you, I just want funny. You just want hard funny. You know why? Your job is hard. It's stressful. And you don't have time. You have enough emotions in your job. You want the, the release. I'm sorry, but our time is up now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you talked about train rack. I want to I show the, a clip from that, too. Ten years later, you direct Amy Schumer mm-hmm. in train rack. And here is a, a scene where she talks about a one-night stand. Oh, okay. I slept at the doctor's place last night. Oh, my God, because you were, like, blackout drunk? No, that's the thing. I, I was dead sober. I had, like, two drinks. Three, max. Four, now that I'm tallying. But it was, like, yeah, I okay, was sober. So, so you barely drink? Barely. Because you're on antibiotics or something? You're... Oh, my God. 
He's calling. Why would he call? You guys just had sex. It's probably a mistake. It's, yeah. it's a mistake. He's, he's butt-dialing you. Hello? Oh, hey there. It's, it's Aaron. Oh, uh, this is Amy. I think you butt-dialed me. <laughs> because, of course, after a one-night stand, he's not going to call her. Yes. Was part of the point there <laughs> to show that girls can be just as raunchy as guys? Well, yes. I, I definitely think that that's part of it is to flip the idea of these kinds of romantic comedies. And, you know, Amy's so hilarious, as right. is Vanessa Bayer, and to just see what the flip side of some of those conversations are. Another one of my favorites that you produced is Ron Burgundy. Mm -hmm. And this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which is when, and I was in local TV, when the local anchormen in San Diego yes. have a street fight about control of the city. Yeah. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> Now I'll be number one. No, you won't! Police! Boy, that escalated quickly. <laughs> you, know, well, you know, which is a, a classic scene from that. There's a group of comedians that you've worked with over the years, and Will Ferrell and Ben Stiller and Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd, and, and they're almost like the Judd Apatow, oh, I said it right again, repertory company. Is part of it that you know they get the joke? Well, I don't think that they're, you know, part of a, <laughs> my repertory company. I mean, they're all kind of amazing and have done right. most of their but, good I mean, stuff without me. But... Uh, I like them. I mean, it's more like they're people that I'm, I'm a fan of them. And I think when you work with people who are great, you just pray you get an opportunity to work with them again. If you work with Will Ferrell, it's the best time of your life. He's so funny and he, he, he's a great collaborator and you just hope that you'll match up again with an idea. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. You just, you meet them and you think, I, I just hope, uh, you know, this happens one more time. Like that day, it was so hot that day. But us and Adam McKay, the, the, the director and the writer of The Will, we just laughed so hard. I mean, I think about that day all the time. I mean, we lit a guy on fire that day. Yes, and, in uh, fact, that's what, that's what they say back in those days. We, yes. we, I think there was a guy we lit on fire. Yeah, and, and you know, it's so hard to be funny. So when you find someone who's funny, it's like gold. Like, oh my gosh, this, is, this person knows how to do it. And so as the years go by, it, it's a larger and larger group of people. Then there is your personal Yes. Repertory company. Yes. Your lovely wife, Leslie Mann, mm -hmm. and your daughters, Maud and Iris, who have been, you've put in a, a bunch of your movies. And mm -hmm. I'm particularly curious, especially about the girls. Yes. Do they ever go Hollywood on you? Do they go Hollywood on me? No, yes. they hate me if I ever do anything uh, that's Hollywood like. Like if I ever have any confidence in myself, they will take me down. So hard. They 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 could not be less uh, impressed. And how do they take Dad down? Uh, well, like if someone walked up to me on the street and complimented me, right, and said, "Oh, that movie made me so happy." The second that person walks away, 
my children will make fun of that person for the next 10 minutes for being so foolish as to think I'm cool in any way. But they don't ever say, Maud doesn't ever say, hey, dad, you know, I, this is my scene. Don't mm. don't cut it or uh, I don't like the way that I'm led in the scene. <laughs> no, no she, hasn't, uh, she hasn't done that. But what, what has been fun is, you know, they were in, you know, knocked up when they were really little. And and this is forty, and then this is forty, and funny people, and now uh, you know Maud is on Euphoria, and is really doing uh, amazing work. I just worked with Iris on on the bubble, and I think because they've eased into the business, they've really gotten amazing at what they do, and they've been around creative, funny people for a very long time. And I think uh, without rushing them, they've become really strong at their craft. Now I have six children, yes. and none of them are in the news business. And yes. part of that is because I've never wanted any of them yes. to be in the news business, because <laughs> it's changed a bit over yes. the course of the last half century. Mm -hmm. You don't have that problem about mm -hmm. your setting your poor kids up to be in entertainment. Well, I've always just liked it. So there was never a part of me that thought, don't have the fun I'm having. You know, if, if, if you can uh, you know, do strong work and, and get in, to me, it seems like a very uh, honorable a career choice, and they've worked really hard and have been doing some amazing stuff, so hopefully their careers will continue to blossom. Finally, it has been suggested that you are responsible for Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. How dare you? And, How dare you? <laughs> and and you know the, the, uh, the allegation, the yes. assertion, which I think mm -hmm. even David Axelrod made, yeah. which was that you participated in mm -hmm. writing jokes for Barack Obama mm -hmm. for the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner, where he mm -hmm. famously went after a fellow in the yes. audience named Donald Trump. And we yes. have some of that. Obviously, we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, <laughs> for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership, and so ultimately you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. <laughs> you fired Gary Busey. <laughs> and these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. There's a funny part of that shot that I just noticed. It looks like Rick Scott, but it might not be. No, it was Rick Scott. I, <laughs> and, I noticed that for the first time, too. And, and if you want to see what a, what a sycophant looks like, he's literally doing this the whole time. Like, is, is he laughing? Is he laughing? <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is for a real estate mogul. He's not anything in terms <laughs> exactly. of politics at that point. You know, a lot of people say it was mm. because of that beatdown mm. and that humiliation that Trump finally decided, after yes. flirting with it for a long time, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm going to run. So my question is, Judd, has that been hard to live with? Uh, well, I, you know, I don't believe that, that that history is true. That was more, uh, that was the night that, uh, that bin Laden. The next night. That uh, bin the Laden. next night was, was, was killed. So right. what year was that? It was 2011. 2011. So, you know, it was five years uh, before it happened. And I think that he always was flirting with it. I saw the Roger Stone documentary, and I think every four years he almost got into the game. And I think his calculation to get into the game was not like, oh, four years ago someone made a joke. I think he certainly, as we've seen, wanted to be in power. I think you are underestimating <laughs> the power of your beatdown of Donald Trump <laughs> and the scars that it left. Judd, thank you. This has been yes. a, jo a joy. Keep making funny stuff. Thank you. And I will try to rock these endings a little bit harder, okay. knowing you're in All your right. pajamas yeah, you, watching. Forget the sentimental stuff. Just, yes. uh, you know, more waxing. Okay. <laughs>
Whether his future projects are making movies, documentaries, or writing more books, we know Judd will continue to chart new territory while, yes, making us laugh along the way. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.